Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining today's Rockefeller Capital Management Special Client Event. Today's event is the fifth in our series and will be a conversation between Greg Fleming and world-renowned financier and philanthropist David Rubenstein. A recording of this event will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce our president and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom. Good afternoon, all. Clients of Rockefeller, our Rockefeller team, friends of Rockefeller, as Tom said, welcome to our fifth special client event during this historic time. It's my great pleasure today to welcome David Rubenstein, he's a friend of mine for a long time and the co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest and most successful private equity firms uh, since its founding in 1987. Now, David will be and is always humble, but he's had a spectacular career. Coming from a modest financial background, his father was employed by the U.S. Postal Service and his mother a homemaker. David has made his mark across virtually all aspects of life in 21st century America. On the business side, as I said, he founded, co-founded uh, Carlisle in 1987. It's grown to a firm with 225 billion in assets under management, operating in 32 locations around the world. It is one of the premier brands in the history of the private equity business. He's also prominently involved in the education space, chairman of the board of Duke University, where he uh, attended college, chairman of the Smithsonian Institute, on the board of trustees of the University of Chicago School of Law, where he got his law degree. David supports financially all the organizations that he devotes time to. His philanthropy extends across virtually every aspect of American society, beyond education, the arts. He's on the board of trustees of the JFK Center for Performing Arts, medicine, the environment, history. This is one of the places where he's made such a unique mark from a historical standpoint. He's given transformative gifts for the restoration and repair of the Washington Monument, Mount Vernon, the Iwo Jima Memorial, the National Zoo. This is just a subset of the uh, places that he's uh, helped bring back to a uh, good state. He's also provided to the US government long-term loans of his rare copies of the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment, the first map of the U.S., and yes, the first book printed in the U.S. From a philanthropic standpoint, David's also one of the 40 initial members of the Giving Pledge, and I'm pleased and I wanted everybody at Rockefeller Capital Management to hear this, that he's a recipient of the Museum of Modern Art's David Rockefeller Award. As most of our uh, colleagues would be aware, the David Rockefeller Award was named for the museum's honorary chairman, who was a huge advocate of philanthropy uh, and also very focused on uh, the link between corporate, the corporate community and cultural organizations. So David is a, a recipient of the David Rockefeller uh, uh, Philanthropy Award. So what uh, David and I are going to do today is the tag team. We've done this in the past. 
I'll spend the first part of the session uh, asking David questions and interviewing David. He's going to turn it around uh, and ask me questions. And then I'm going to circle back to him for some final thoughts. Uh, and we'll wrap up at the end with some uh, a quotation and hopefully some upbeat uh, messages for people to take away. So, David, uh, it's great to have you with us today. Uh, good afternoon. Well, my pleasure to be here. And I, as soon as this call is over, I'm calling my executor to make sure that you are the person giving my eulogy because nobody has ever <laughs> said so many nice things about me. So thank you for that. Um, I would just like to say at the outset uh, about my own connection with the Rockefeller family. Um, as you pointed out, I did get the Rockefeller, uh, David Rockefeller Award. And at the time that I got it, uh, David Rockefeller was in the audience and I said, that I wasn't sure why I got it, maybe because they already had towels made up with my initials on them because they already, they're the same initials as David Rockefeller. But actually I said, what, what actually the connection is, is this. Uh, when my family came to Ellis Island, our name was Rockefeller. Um, but they said, no, we wanna make sure people know we're Jewish. So get rid of the Rockefeller name. Can you give us something that's nice and long and ethnic? So we got Rubenstein. Uh, obviously that's not true. But I, I did get to know David Rockefeller uh, as a young man, I was working as a young lawyer in New York, and New York City was going bankrupt. This is in the uh, uh, mid-1970s. And David Rockefeller, then the head of uh, Chase Manhattan Bank, did an extraordinary job working with the business community to make sure New York City did not go bankrupt. And uh, I always uh, had looked up to him from that time on. I uh, have succeeded him as the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was for many, many years the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations and helped build the Council on Foreign Relations to the great institution it is today, and I uh, have the privilege of serving as, as chairman of it. And he and I were in the same, uh, um, I'd say, social group in the club in California. And I'm pleased to say that David Rockefeller Jr., who I regard as a friend of mine, is also in that same group. So I feel close to the Rockefeller family. And my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter, is a member of the Next Generation Advisory Board of Rockefeller uh, Capital Management. So I'm very honored with that as well. So. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. Well, that's great, David. And uh, I think I told you this in advance, but David Rockefeller Jr. and his wife, Susan, I believe are listening today. They've listened to uh, the first uh, four of uh, these client events, so I'm sure they're listening today. So I'm sure he's pleased with all the connections. And we are pleased to have your daughter, Alexa, on our next gen uh, uh, advisory uh, council. So um, uh, with that, uh, if we uh, jump into some of the, the substance of, uh, of what we go back and forth on. Um, the, the, uh, the current world, the, uh, the U.S. economy uh, in the, uh, you know, against the backdrop of uh, COVID-19 and the events of the last uh, couple of months. Can you uh, start by, um, uh, you know, talking a little bit about uh, sure. where we are from an economic standpoint? Markets are obviously, you know, up and down and trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, states starting to open up again. Um, I, I know um, you're uh, you're active with uh, a, a broad cross section of uh, of the people involved on on every basis here. So just uh, start by giving a little bit of an overview of where are we from an economic standpoint in the All U.S. Right. Let me quote uh, two people. Uh, I, I agree with one and disagree with another at the outset, and then I'll answer your question. There was a person uh, named uh, Bo. Uh, Goldman. Um, some of you may remember this. He was the scriptwriter for a movie called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a very famous movie. Um, and he wrote a book later about Hollywood. And it was called Nobody Here Knows Anything, which is to say that 
nobody who writes a script in Hollywood or produces a movie in Hollywood really knows whether it's going to be a success or not. It's, it's really uh, happenstance to some extent, obviously not true, but that was his point. And to some extent, I agree with that in terms of people talking about the economy now. So I, I, I'm going to give you my views, but you should discount it because nobody has ever been through something like this, and therefore nobody really knows. The second person I would like to quote is somebody that I would disagree with, and that was Sir John Templeton, a famous investor, and he famously said that the most dangerous words in the investment world are, this time is different, which is to say, many times when you have problems or great uh, occurrences in the economy, people say, this is different, this is a greater boom than we've ever had before, or this is a greater depression we've ever had before, and his point was, that's always, always wrong because things just repeat themselves. That might be true, but actually this time I think is different. And that's the reason is this. We've been through uh, economic uh, calamities before, the Great Depression, the Great Recession, 9-11, uh, things like that. But they were not really combined with the enormous healthcare problem that we now see. People are, are uh, afraid of their, of their uh, ability to, to function, to live, and to not get this disease. And that's combined with the health, the, the economic problems we have. So it's a really, it, it really is different. Where the economy is, is again, I wouldn't say anybody knows for certain, but the economy is in a recession now. Now, not technically in this sense. Recessions mean two consecutive quarters of negative growth. The first quarter in the United States was negative 4.85%. There is nobody in the world that I know of who thinks the second quarter isn't going to be seriously below that. I don't know whether it would be 10% or 20%. I've heard as high as 30% below that in terms of GDP. Nobody really knows, but it's sure clearly when, it, when the numbers come out, we'll technically be in a recession. There is no word between recession and depression. Uh, somebody perhaps could come up with one. I don't know that we're going into a depression. Remember that the Great Depression lasted for four years. I don't think that this is going to last for four years, but it's going to be seriously uh, uh, more adverse than the, uh, a normal recession. Remember, recessions could mean that you're only down by you know, 0.1% or 0.5% or 1% for two consecutive quarters. This is much more serious than that. Now, the markets themselves gyrate a lot. And I, I urge all investors to not pay too much attention to the daily vicissitudes of the market, unless you're a, a day trader or something, that's your livelihood. But I think the markets are, are, are just gonna, uh, um, go up and down so much because the news is going to be um, uh, so uh, changing so much that nobody really knows uh, what the news is going to mean. So people will go get optimistic one point and get very pessimistic another point. The real truth is you should focus on uh, the, the underlying economy. The underlying economy that, that we had before this uh, COVID-19 was pretty good, maybe as good as we've seen in many, many years. It's not... Um, going to go away completely in the sense that a year from now or two years from now or three years from now, we'll probably come back to that. But during this period of time, what we're going to see is a couple of things that I'll just mention before I uh, finish this answer. People normally go back to work after a recession, they get hired back. But what is going to happen here is I think a lot of employers, unfortunately, are going to say, I don't need all the employees I had before. My business is not coming back for quite some time. So I think a lot of people who have been furloughed or laid off will not be coming back to work anytime soon, in my view, unfortunately. Secondly, people are going to change their conduct. Normally, after a recession, you say, okay, we're getting back to work, we're going to hire people, we'll go back to what we're doing before. I don't think that's the case here now. P 
people are going to say, well, I'm not going to travel quite as much. I'm not going to go to a concert quite as much. I'm not going to go to a sporting event quite as much. Now, eventually, over a period of time, things do revert to the mean. And in five years or 10 years, human conduct might be the same as it was a year or so ago. But it's going to take a while for that to happen. For those of you who are my, my generation, baby boomers, you may recall that your parents used to talk about the Great Depression and how they lived through it. And they learned many things from it. And they were scarred by it. Well, my generation and many people alive today are going to be scarred by this. They aren't going to change their, they're going to change their, their conduct in many ways. And it's going to be a while before they get back to where they were before. And the last point I wanted to make about the economy really is, um, is this. Uh, the U.S. economy is still the strongest economy in the world. And it will be for the lifetime of virtually everybody on this, on this phone call, I'm sure. Uh, we just have many more uh, assets than any other economy in the world. And while China may be the biggest economy in the world at some point, it's, it's uh, per capita GDP will not in our lifetime be anything close to the U.S. So we have a lot of strengths, and I don't think those strengths are going to evaporate overnight. The entrepreneurial spirit, the financial markets, the great management talent, uh, the regulatory system, the, the rule of law, all those things contribute to our economy. And I do think these things will be here. But I think we're going to be in, a, in a, a downward period for a while until people can sort through how they feel comfortable engaging again in human conduct that we've had for many, many years before that. Okay. David, can we pursue the, the jobs uh, part of it? Because um, you know, that's a thing that, uh, and, and I know you, you, you talk to these people all the time too, but that's what, uh, you know, Secretary Mnuchin and the federal government are right. trying to bridge these small businesses so that jobs don't don't get lost and they're still there since it really is this interregnum, this gap that we're trying to get across. Uh, and you said, you know, a lot of these jobs won't come back in the in the near term. Does that, you know, can you talk a little bit about, uh, yeah. is that okay. certain industries or w which sectors of society, you know, okay. as, as you said, you know, I used to say to people that, but at the end of February, we may have had the strongest economy in the United States that we've seen in 50 years with more people employed, lower unemployment, dominating, you know, the, the economy dominant in so many industries. So uh, if we can start to get people back out now, can't we bridge the job picture or, or, uh, or not? Well, let me uh, address that. I, I, some of you may remember when we had the Great Recession, uh, Ben Bernanke and um, Secretary uh, Paulson went to Capitol Hill to get something that later was called TARP passed. And Congress, the House of Representatives, actually turned it down the first time, which shocked people because they were seeking $800 billion, $800 billion. Uh, eventually it was passed and it actually worked out pretty well. And the federal government actually made money on, on the TARP investments. This time we've so far put in, you know, probably around two plus trillion dollars. And I give a lot of credit to the administration and Congress for not playing too much politics in this and getting it done. However, that is still a drop in the bucket to what we really need. We have a 20 plus trillion dollar economy. And while the $2 trillion is helpful, it doesn't solve all the problems. Let me give you an example. Uh, small businesses. Uh, many small businesses in this country are, you know, five employees, 10 employees, 20 people, 50 people, something like that. Um, many of them are, do not have bank accounts in a traditional way. Many of them uh, are cash businesses, which means that they don't really want to have a lot of forms from the federal government that they're dealing with. Many of them uh, employ people that may not be legally employable in the United States, but they employ them anyway. 
So there are many people that are doing business in ways that they might not want to intersect with the federal government so much. They're not going to apply for these loans or these um, grants. And many of them who do apply aren't likely to get them because there just isn't enough money out there. You saw that in just about two weeks, the first uh, batch of these uh, uh, loans was, was kind of uh, used up. We passed another bill to give some more money out, but even that will probably go away soon. We just don't have enough money to solve all the small business problems that are out there. So I, I feel bad for many small businesses because I just don't think they're all gonna, gonna survive. I, I, you know, they may reconstitute themselves, people will start new businesses, but not every small business is gonna come back. And the main businesses in the United States, the, the mid-sized, the big businesses, I just don't think they're gonna employ everybody that they employed before. I'll give you a good example. Many people have learned to use Zoom or the equivalent or learn how to conduct business from their home. Some people are gonna say, you know, I'm not comfortable going back to work for a while and I can do this uh, from my home. And some employers are gonna say, you know what? We don't really need all these employees we thought we needed. We don't need all the, uh, the space we thought to have in our offices that we thought we needed. We don't need to have all the, uh, the, the, the things we're doing before. So to answer your question about specific industries, clearly the airline industry is gonna suffer, it already has. Clearly the hospitality industry is gonna suffer, it already has. Clearly uh, things like cruise ships are gonna be suffering, uh, but all businesses are gonna have some impact on this. Now, of course, Amazon and things that are technology related, yes, they're gonna do well, but uh, more businesses I think are gonna be suffering than are gonna be helped by this phenomenon, and it's gonna take a while for it to come back. David, I know you spend a tremendous amount of time traveling all over the world, and uh, Carlisle is, is, operates everywhere and, frankly, owns businesses everywhere. Um, any perspective on uh, China and, uh, and Asia and some of the places that were earlier affected? Uh, are they coming back online um, in a more traditional manner, or some of the things that you're talking about here, uh, those constraints are in place there and they're coming back uh, more slowly? Well, it's coming back a little more slow than people would have preferred. So, for example, when, when China had its problems, the Marriott hotels, I interviewed Arnie Sorensen, the CEO of Marriott recently, the statistics he gave were that when, when the Marriott uh, hotels had to close in China, obviously they had no occupancy. Now they're back online, but uh, they're probably at 20% occupancy. So people aren't traveling quite as much. Obviously, people coming from outside of China are not coming anymore to China. Um, China is a, a strong economy. I suspect it will uh, grow at uh, you know one or two percent a year uh, this year, not at the normal six percent or so. Um, what I worry about with respect to China is this: um, the, it, we're in the political season in the United States, and so you know when you're in the political season, you have to blame somebody for something. People always do that in politics, it seems, and it seems as if the Democrats and the Republicans both think that China is a pretty good target. And so I suspect you'll see a lot of blame of China, and that's not gonna enhance the relationship uh, over this period of time. One of the things that will change with respect to the Chinese economy though, and I think this is not a great sign for the Chinese economy, is this. What the healthcare crisis here has shown us is how dependent we are in our supply chain on China. Just not only on healthcare products, but healthcare is, is very essential. The United States, to get masks, is begging people in China to sell them to them. We don't make the mask in these United States, at least we didn't make enough of them. Uh, many other uh, uh, personal protective equipment is made in China. We're gonna change that for sure, and many uh, employer and uh, companies are now gonna be doing things in this country. They'll change the supply chain, but that'll take business away from China. I also think that many other 
companies that do business with China may be nervous about the political repercussions of doing too much with China. And so even if it's not a healthcare related thing, you'll see some companies, and this already started before this crisis, some companies that manufacture things uh, and are assembled outside the United States, they will say, I'm not gonna have all my uh, overseas factories in China. I'll put them in other countries, so I'm not dependent just on China. So I think China is a uh, country, country that we do a lot of business with, we're gonna do a lot of business with in the future, but I think the relationship will change. And I think over the next couple of months, it may not be as pretty as it should be. Uh, David, I know you inter interviewed uh, Anthony Fauci, uh, I think it was this week, just a few days ago. Yeah, that's um, right. And it, it factors into this whole, uh, he certainly has a big voice uh, still uh, in the administration and, and in terms of how we start to try to come out of this. Um, what, what are your views after spending uh, so much time with him on uh, right. what the path is to returning to a more normal state here now from a, you know, a getting people back out standpoint? I've known him for a very long time. His brother-in-law used to work at Carlisle for about 10 years and through him many years ago, I got to know uh, Tony Fauci. And uh, when I got, he reached the, what I thought would might be a nice retirement age of 70, I went to him and said, well, you've done all this great work in the federal government. Why don't you come into the private sector and be a healthcare advisor uh, to Carlisle? But he wasn't interested. He doesn't care about money or things like that. Um, he's an incredible person. He's now been running the um, Institutes for Allergy and Infectious Diseases for 36 years. He's 79 years old. He uh, has won every award you can win, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, he's an extraordinary public servant. He's the kind of public servant we should say, thank God we have these kind of people working for us. But he's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I think early on, I interviewed him for the Business Council uh, in January. And at that time, he didn't think we'd have anything close to what we have now. And he would admit that he, did, he was surprised how significant it became. Uh, today, he would say, look, we are in a crisis. Uh, we can't completely shut down the economy forever. He recognizes that we'd have to come back. He would prefer a little bit more time than maybe some of the political figures would prefer. But he just thinks that you've got to recognize that you've got to change your human conduct, more social distancing for a while, uh, more um, uh, wearing of masks. And also, uh, he, he was very hopeful we might get a vaccine by the end of this year. But I should point out, I, and we have a lot of people working on vaccines and nobody wants a vaccine more than I do, but we still do not have a vaccine for HIV. We have some treatments for HIV, but just because people want a vaccine doesn't mean a vaccine will occur. Uh, the, the great influenza of 1918, so often called the Spanish flu, they never could detect what that virus actually was. And even today, we do not have a vaccine for that particular uh, influenza. So we might get a vaccine, but one of the downsides of thinking about we're getting a vaccine is this. Vaccines are good for the individual uh, virus that you're dealing with, but this virus seems to be able to mutate. And if one comes back in the winter, it's mutated, it, the, the vaccine that's been developed for the existing uh, strand of this virus may not work for the next strand or the mutated version. So I hope we get a vaccine, but you don't know for certain. But in the end, uh, I'm I, I glad we have Dr. Fauci telling everybody we have to do these things and I hope people listen, but I, at some point human conduct will re require us to kind of go to a more typical lifestyle. I just hope we, we learn some things. We don't have to always shake hands. We can wear a mask in more appropriate settings. We should use more social distancing and hopefully a vaccine will, will be developed at some point. Yeah, David, uh, when, if, we, if we shift to the, the businesses dealing with the 
implications that, uh, of some of the things we've talked about here. Uh, and uh, again, uh, Carlisle uh, owns lots of businesses and lots of different industries. Um, how are the CEOs of, uh, of not just your portfolio companies, but CEOs across right. the landscape dealing with uh, uh, you know the the challenges that they have today? And uh, you know, one of one of the things that, right. uh, that that you know that we we've been talking about is that there there are great businesses that existed before this that couldn't really have anticipated this and uh, are trying to you know saw their revenues go to zero and they're trying to get through it. I mean. Right. So what what dialogue do you have with CEOs? Well, what are you recommending? What are the big challenges? Okay, I'm involved with the business council, and we meet uh, by video once a week. And we talk about the, the various problems that CEOs are facing. And I have a TV show now on Bloomberg where I interview CEOs in their homes because uh, I used to interview them in their offices. Now they're all in their homes. Uh, all the CEOs got to be a CEO because they have some kind of leadership quality. Uh, leadership it varies from top person to person and, and industry to industry, but all of them are nervous about the business that they have. Well, how do you how do you keep your employees safe? That's number one for everybody. How do you keep your employees safe? Number two, how do you keep your employees employed? Number three, how do you serve your customers? How do you keep your customers' uh, needs uh, satisfied? And four, how do you make sure that you you have a business going forward? In other words. Uh, you might be dealing some things in an emergency setting, but in the end, when we're through this, will your business still survive? So all those issues are, 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 are very serious ones. Uh, I interviewed uh, Arnie Sorensen for my show the other day, and Arnie Sorensen, who runs Marriott, you know, his business is down about 75 to 80% in the United States. They have about 5,000 hotels in the United States, and they're you know, operating at, at 5 and 10% occupancies, those that are open. Um, that's a very serious uh, problem. And, and to think that people are to come back and stay in hotels overnight or, or so quickly, it's, it's a challenge. Uh, th uh, just a few days ago, I interviewed the CEO of, of uh, Cargill, which is the, one of the largest food suppliers. And they have a very serious problem that it's now being addressed by the president's executive order. But meat packing and meat uh, slaughterhouses and other things where meat is, is prepared for people to ultimately eat, um, people are, are working those things very closely together. And a lot of these people have caught the disease, uh, the virus, and they've had to shut down some in some places. Now they're back open, but you have to be very careful. Make sure you have the equipment to make sure your people can work uh, work together. And I would say it's a, a sad situation in the food industry because what's happened is so many people in the in the in in, in right now are unemployed, and we 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 don't have enough food for everybody in, in in the right way because people are standing on food lines. They don't have it in their homes, and they don't have the money now to buy it. On the other hand, we are killing animals prematurely because we don't have a ways to get them to the market right now or there are other uh, challenges. So we have a real disconnect in the food industry and it's, it's something that's going to be addressed. But every CEO um, is really earning his or her spurs now because this is a time none of them ever anticipated. And the great CEOs are the ones who are dropping everything, focusing on this, their employees, their customers, making certain they have a business and trying to make sure that their employees are, are able to not only be healthy, but actually have a job when, when this is over. Yeah, David, one thing that we didn't when we were talking about the economy and we started getting into markets a little bit, uh, but the energy markets uh, are are, uh, are also uh, in, in turmoil for, ironically or not ironically, but obviously the demand shock and the plummet in demand. But at the same right. time, we had some supply issues with uh, the Saudis and the Russians. And uh, can you talk a little bit about where yes. we stand there and and how you see that uh, moving forward? 
so those who haven't focused on this is a you know when when um, uh, there was a great oil shock. This was hard for people maybe to believe who are younger than me. But in 1973, during the so-called Yom Kippur War, the United States ultimately sided with Israel. That upset the some members of the uh, OPEC, and there was a boycott of you know, not all members of OPEC, but some of, were, were upset with the United States. There was a boycott, and oil went from about a dollar and a quarter a barrel to about four fifty five dollars a barrel. It went up almost it quadrupled. That was an oil shock. It put the U.S. into a recession and so forth. Uh, now we are experiencing a, a dislocation almost similar to that. It's not that prices are going up so much, they're going down so much. And they're going down because of three reasons. One, the um, Russians, as you said, and the Saudis have been unable to agree on supply cuts, and therefore we have more oil in the market than we probably should have. Two, the United States doesn't um, control the amount of oil produced the way the Saudis and the Russians do. And so people in this country, that's a good thing about this country, can produce whatever they want. Well, we've been producing so much oil because of the shale oil phenomenon that we are the biggest oil producer in the world or have been up until recently. So you have the United States producing enormous amount of oil, the Russians and the Saudis producing enormous amount of oil, and they, we, don't need, we didn't need that much oil right now, but when this COVID-19 crisis came, we hardly needed half of it. Why? Because people aren't traveling. People aren't uh, using uh, oil anymore. And the result is that the markets are flooded with excess oil. So we have tankers all over the world sitting in, in, in ports and oceans or, or in tank farms. We don't need the oil. So normally during a day, uh, the world consumes anywhere from between 100 and 102 barrels of oil a day, something like that normally. Now uh, we're consuming you know, maybe 50 million barrels of oil a day, maybe. And so you've got about 50 million barrels of oil a day being produced that we probably don't need. So it's a big problem, and, and the result is that you've seen probably everybody on this call that at some point in the futures market, people were paying you uh, to, to take the oil, in effect, because uh, because it was uh, it, it, people didn't want any oil. They didn't want it any price at all. They didn't want to even hold it. They wanted to pay you to take the oil. Um, I don't think this is going to be resolved anytime soon. Um, we are transitioning over a long period of time to renewable energy, but that's going to take a while to replace oil. So oil prices will come back for sure but they're not going to come back to the $120 barrel oil we had just a few years ago. So I think we should, we should recognize that a lot of oil companies, oil service companies, are probably going to go out of business. Um, it's going to be tough for them. Now, uh, some oil companies have hedged their, their businesses and so forth, but when the end of the day comes forward a year from now, I think the big majors will be okay, and the big national oil companies will probably be okay. It's the smaller uh, wildcat drillers and the smaller less capitalized uh, oil companies that are just not going to be in very good shape. So, so uh, Greg, let me ask you and switch it for now uh, for a moment. Uh, let me ask you a couple of questions about uh, some of the things I'm interested in. Uh, first, in the private wealth business, uh, how has uh, COVID-19 affected the private wealth business? Are people saying, I don't know what to do anymore. I want to just go in treasury bills or, I'm, or get me some things at bottom bargain basement kind of uh, uh, prices. What are people telling you? You know, David, it's interesting. It, it evolved a little bit. I think the reason is that the 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 nineteen hit with such speed in markets, as you know, went from uh, from where they were in in February down, uh, you know, by thirty thirty five percent in the fastest amount of time ever in history. So I think there was some shock factor in mid March. Um, but uh, you know, with with some of the Fed actions and some of the stability uh, 
in the credit markets and the equity market obviously is, uh, has done better in recent weeks. Um, you know, clients have, have, have settled in and, uh, and are looking for, uh, you know, for ways to participate smartly. Um, one thing that that is absolutely true, and, and, and this is uh, one of the reasons we, uh, uh, you know, we exist at Rockefeller Capital Management. In, in times like this, advice is reinforced again and again, the importance of advice, because, uh, you know, the, things, things can change so quickly and did change here faster than really at any point in history. I don't know, and you and I both, you know, you, you, you detailed the different crises we both lived through, including the credit crisis, uh, you know, where I had uh, maybe the, the front row seat, uh, but we go back to 9-11 and then, you know, you know, various things in the 70s, 80s and 90s, all the way back to that oil shock you talked about in 73, 74. Nothing was quite as uh, comprehensive and uh, abrupt as what we've seen here ever. 9-11 was obviously fast. It happened in one day. It shocked the world. It, it, it in particular shocked New York and the Northeast. But as you said, it, it wasn't, you know, health related and it didn't affect, you know, the entire country and the entire world. Whereas here, something set in and in a month, things went from, you know, all-time highs in equity markets, all-time highs in employment, all-time lows in unemployment to, you know, massive dislocation and and, and down 20, 30, 40%, just like right. that. So that, that shock factor oh. reinforced the importance of advice and working with professionals who will, uh, you know, counsel you, you know, you have in place a good plan. They start to help you adjust it, our advisors working with their clients. But, you know, you really want somebody who does this for a living uh, sitting next to you. So that, that's been a real positive in our business. Well, when you were a senior officer of Merrill Lynch, uh, helping to run Merrill Lynch, and when the head credit crisis occurred in 2008-9, how did that differ from what you're now experiencing? You know, uh, David, for, for for us and for those in the big financial firms during that time, um, it, it was a it was it was also uh, incredibly stressful. But it also built, and it took time. So credit markets started to really come under pressure, as you remember, uh, in 07, in the summer of 07. Uh, and the S&P didn't hit its low until March of 09. You know, TARP came in in the, in, uh, the fall of 08. So it was, a, it was a train coming off the tracks, but it took a while uh, for, for it to occur. And it was more concentrated in the financial space. So yes, you know the economy started to really uh, start to turn down, and the credit problems existed throughout society. The debt bubble, as I used to talk about, uh, was a national debt bubble. It wasn't just the financial firms and the Wall Street firms. You know, Americans were levered at every level, and that debt had been built up since the Reagan administration, where savings rates were were uh, were much higher. In fact, we now have savings rates today that are as high as we've seen since 1981, uh, given what's going on today. So, you know, you had 25 years of creating a debt bubble, but the tip of the spear was the financial firms. And we were the ones who were dealing with that stress. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had that 18 months of seemingly being hunted where we wrote down assets and we had to write down more and raise capital. But it was um, it, it was a narrower, uh, a narrower crisis and a longer crisis than uh, than what's happened here. This this happened so fast and it hit everybody. You know, the lesson that the private equity world learned from the last recession, great recession, was hold on to what you own as much as you possible. 
put more equity in if you if it's a good asset buy your debt back at a discount don't speculate on things you don't know something about and don't panic and i assume you kind of agree with those kind of uh, words of advice for today for your clients 100 percent. i mean that's exactly and, and again this is where if you have professional advice and we think we have the best private wealth advisors in the in the world you know they're sitting there and they're saying we had a diversified plan in place uh you know we, some of the assets are clearly going to be down in public securities but you know if you have a diversified plan where you have alternatives and you have fixed income and you have um, uh, you know, something that was in, intended to hold up well, even in a market that went this far south this quickly. Um, th those words of calm and, and, you know, not panicking and going all to cash at the wrong point. Uh, it's, it's a very, very important way to deal with, uh, you know, uh, somebody's wealth. Yeah, I'm I, I, curious in your perspective on this. I tell people sometimes, look, if you are Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, or some other kind of extraordinarily talented person, you're probably going to figure out how to make money or create your wealth and, and hold on your wealth over a period of time. If you're a George Soros a trader or Stan Druckenmiller, you're probably going to figure out how to trade and do well. But if you're not a genius in the investment world or some other world, uh, don't try to become a genius during a recession. Don't all of a sudden say, hey, this stock is down 25%, I'm going to go buy it, even though if you're not a, a, a stock picker. Uh, don't try all of a sudden to borrow money to buy things that are uh, speculative. You know, great fortunes are lost that way. Uh, great fortunes are retained over generations, in my view, by staying steady, not panicking, not over levering. Do you have any views on that? One, one you know, again, uh, 100%. I mean, we're helping our clients with, uh, you know, smart ideas that make sense uh, given the window of what's gone on in markets. So. Uh, there's an ability to invest in in some distressed credit at a time like this, and there have been opportunities like that that get presented. You got you have to pick the right manager and make sure that uh, you know you're going with somebody who's really best in class. So we look for ways to to bring smart ideas to clients, but against the backdrop of a calm, steady approach to the the overall picture, consistent with what we were talking to them about 12 months ago and five years ago. And we will be talking to them about five years from now. Uh, we don't like to see somebody go from uh, one place to 180 degrees differently because they think there's either opportunity or not. So it, it would have been just as problematic given the S&P at uh, you know, 33, 34, 100 uh, in January and February to, uh, to, to change an asset allocation and take a long-term plan and, and go too far into public equities, just like it would be problematic to panic when the S&P is at 2,400 and say, this is the time to go to all cash. We like a, a, a right. comprehensive plan that we adapt at the margin, look for smart opportunities, but it's a steady 5, 10, 20, 30-year uh, approach to this. And, and frankly, David, this is really why Rockefeller is such a great name because the Rockefeller family advised by people like us has done that for literally generations. We're on our seventh generation of Rockefellers uh, who, who come to us for this kind of advice and counsel. So um, recently um, I, I did some checking on this as, a, as because of what we're going through and I uh, there's no doubt that some people made some money in the grass recession 
but they were people that already had a fairly good businesses and they might have tinkered it and improved it a bit by buying their own debt back at a discount or they put some equity into their own company they knew very well. But I looked at the Forbes 400 list and I didn't see anybody who was not on that list before the Great Recession who made so much money buying things at distressed prices in the Great Recession that all of a sudden they got on the Forbes 400 list. Because those things don't really exist in my view. You have a, you disagree or you think people can figure out how to become billionaires by uh, speculating right now? I, I think it's very hard. I mean, you know, there's some examples uh, in, in the last, uh, in the in the credit crisis, there were those who's, who, who claimed to have uh, have uh, shorted subprime mortgage in, in some of the real estate areas before uh, those markets really right. uh, crashed. And, and as you know, there are several prominent hedge fund managers that were, right. were out right. front on that. Uh, so you have you have some examples like that, but frankly, David, and, and you started signaling this in, in terms of the change in, in conduct of people. Fortunes are made uh, at times like this uh, a lot of the time from people seeing business opportunity that comes out of uh, of situations like this. So as you know, coming out of the credit crisis around that time, you had Uber and Airbnb and a lot of uh, businesses right. like that founded uh, in and around that time. And, and there are now uh, many people already looking at uh, some of the things you described earlier uh, that, that might become more secular changes in society where people are working more remotely, right. people are doing things differently. There will be, and this is one of the great things, that's why I agree with you, the, the American economy will remain uh, the strongest in the world coming out of this because there's already people looking at uh, businesses that can, can be developed and expanded coming out of this. So I look at more fortunes being made that way than uh, people saying they see something in a market dislocation from an investment standpoint. They change their whole plan and they move in that direction and somehow they make a fortune. That's not, right. it doesn't happen often. It's not the business we're in. We're in that steady 20, 30 year business that you described. Right. So what do you think, how do you think Wall Street will change when this is all over? You know, it's interesting, David. I think Wall Street on this one came into it uh, in, in part, uh, and, and not everybody uh, uh, on Wall Street, not, not all my friends would probably agree with this, but given some of the changes that were that came out of the credit crisis, and including higher capital levels, higher liquidity levels, uh, you know, things that, that caused uh, the financial firms to be very, very well capitalized coming into this, and in a very strong position. I think that uh, the financial sector is one of the strengths uh, uh, at this time. Uh, you know, and as you know, Secretary Mnuchin uh, turned to the banks on the small business program because they have the relationships with the small right. businesses. Government wasn't going to find all these small businesses in time. So I think Wall Street comes out of this, uh, uh, the financial firms uh, come out of this in, uh, in, in, a, in a pretty strong position. And, and, I, and I think actually that's a good thing for all of us because uh, you know a strong financial sector will be helpful as we as we as kind of dig out of this and move forward. So when your your firm is backing money managers, what is it that you're looking for in a money manager that you back? Is it a long track record, a, a great intelligence, a drive, a good team with him or her? What is it that you're looking for? We're looking for, um, we have a, a, a lot of, uh, we, have, uh, we call it a manager selection effort where we spend a lot of time evaluating third-party managers and making sure that the ones we're recommending to our clients, we have great confidence in. So we're looking for uh, track records over uh, a longer period of time. We're looking at commitment to an investment approach and style and staying with it. Uh, 
We're looking for obviously differentiated and best in class performance. We're looking for the the mindset of the people running the business. Uh, how do they think about their clients and uh, you know, why can we trust them with our clients money? So we spent a lot of time on this because there's so many managers in every asset class and category. Uh, we we, we want to make sure that we get this right uh, and, and the things that we're showing to our clients. And, you know, during this time, David, we've been uh, we've raised money uh, in a number of, of asset classes. I mentioned distress for clients and we did a lot of work on uh, which manager we wanted to put in front of uh, in, in front of our clients. So uh, all of that very, very important to us. So um, let's talk for a moment, if we could, about philanthropy, because um, the Rockefeller name is synonymous with philanthropy. I would say they more or less uh, in the late 1890s, early part of the 20th century, kind of invented modern philanthropy as we now know it. Andrew Carnegie obviously was an important factor as well as John D. Rockefeller. Um, um, I'll give you my observation, then I'd like to hear yours. On philanthropy, uh, it's going to change a fair bit because right now, uh, many people feel less wealthy than they did before, whether they're really that much less wealthy, we won't know for a while, but they feel a little bit less wealthy. And therefore, I don't know that they're going to be quite as generous as they were. I hope they will be, but they might not be. Um, secondly, many of the nonprofit organizations in the United States, the ones the Rockefellers have been associated with, but so many other great museums uh, and uh, uh, art, art museums and other kinds of organizations and uh, symphonies, operas, uh, performing arts organizations, things like that, they depend on philanthropy. Uh, I'm the chairman of the Kennedy Center, and we got some criticism because we got $25 million from the federal government in, one of the, in the first CARES legislation. But we've had to furlough people uh, because in, if you're in the performing arts business, you have no revenue if you can't have any events. And uh, all performing arts organizations are going through this. So I do think philanthropy will change a bit. And it's going to take a while for philanthropic organizations to get back to where they were just about a year ago. Uh, do you see that in your clients? Are they focused on philanthropy changes? And how do you think some of them are looking at these issues now? I, I worry about this because uh, this has been uh, such a, a huge positive in, in, um, in the American society, the American economy. I think we lead in this uh, around the world. Uh, there's just so many uh, people, including those like you, who, who provide the leadership uh, with with major resources. So. Uh, when you have a dent like this, uh, you know, a situation like this economically, there's always a dent uh, of some magnitude in philanthropy. So if this if this uh, uh, goes in the direction you said, where uh, uh, we struggle to put a lot of people back to work and, and the time before we get back to where we were even a couple of months ago from an economic standpoint is longer, I think uh, I think it, it, it will uh, slow philanthropy, uh, you know, on a broader basis. I can tell you, our clients have uh, have been incredible in terms of stepping up uh, to to uh, donate to causes that are dealing directly with the impact of COVID-19, including so many different restaurants and and uh, organizations like that that are looking for, you know, that are raising uh, funds to take care of employees who who obviously have been uh, put out of work because the restaurants, uh, so many of them are closed. So we've seen a massive upswing in support of COVID-19 impact uh, on other human beings. And it's, it, it, is, it shows the, the, the resonance, not just among our clients, but across the American society 
to take care of others, the instincts around that. So long term, I'm very optimistic. But as you know, David, if um, uh, if if this is, uh, you know, if there's a significant enough downturn here, it is going to uh, to, uh, you know, make it harder to, uh, to to sustain it at the levels it was just a few months ago. Yeah, and uh, you know, one of the interesting things is not directly relevant to what we're talking about. It's an observation that I've had uh, that I guess I can't resist uh, uh, conveying. Uh, one of the things that's changed uh, is people my age, I'm now 70 years old, and I'm a, a baby boomer. I used to think I've you know, maybe an aging baby boomer, but still a baby boomer. Uh, Tom Brokaw called the uh, generation that gave us, that worked through World War II, the greatest generation, and maybe it was, I've called my generation the, and we're not getting off the main stage uh, generation because so many people in their 70s are still vibrant. You know, people running for president of the United States are in their 70s. In fact, many of the most recent candidates running for president were all in their 70s. And so many people still active in the business world, the investment world, uh, or the cultural world are in their 70s. And the interesting thing about this and the tragic thing about this, um, this healthcare uh, crisis we've had is, is really, to some extent, this. Um, when humans came out of caves 400,000 years ago as Homo sapiens, the average life expectancy was only 20 because of uh, bad nutrition, sanitation, lots of things. In, in 1900, the average life expectancy upon birth in the United States was only 49. Today, the average life expectancy is, let's say, 80, give or take a couple of years, depending on lots of ethnic or uh, other factors, if you're born today. And if you make it to 80, your life expectancy is probably in the 90s. Um, what this and, and but what's happened is because of modern medicine, um, even if you get a disease today, uh, you have enough medical treatment, most likely, that you can survive with it, maybe tolerate it or live with it for a period of time. Obviously, car crashes and plane crashes are different, but people my age have generally thought, okay, if you made it to 70, you're probably in reasonable health. I'm going to make it another 10, 15, 20 years. Who knows? But this. Um, COVID-19 has changed all that because people are, in, in, who are, let's say, above 60 or so, if they get it, sometimes they could die within a week. And that has scared my generation to such an extent that for the first time, people in my generation are really uh, sensing their own mortality. And it might change their own conduct in the future because they now realize, maybe more than before, that, they, that they, life is so um, uh, precious, but also uh, so ephemeral in some ways. And I I hope that everybody listening recognizes that, you know, you've got a finite period of time to do things on this earth. And one of them I hope people will do is uh, is uh, philanthropy. Another one that to do is try to figure out what you really want to achieve while you're on this face of the earth. Uh, because we've learned through this crisis that it, it could be that, uh, you know, if we can't solve this problem in the near future, a lot more people are going to pass away who shouldn't have passed away. You know, in, in, in the Vietnam War, over a 14-year period of time, more or less, we lost roughly 60-some thousand, 62,000 Americans. Uh, we've lost, in about two months or so, roughly the same amount of Americans. And uh, it just, you know, it just shows you how uh, terrible this disease is and it's gone through so many people, particularly elderly people and particularly people of minorities. So let me ask you a question yeah, about... Uh, yeah. uh, go ahead. Hey, just, David, on that... On yeah, no, I would comment because I, I've been, you know, we've all, I've been watching this very closely because, uh, uh, you know, it is, it is such a unique uh, uh, situation and this virus is, is, is its own animal in, in so many ways. 
and and the impact on elderly, the statistics for elderly are are uh, are scary. Uh, and you know, I've got elderly parents, and uh, uh, it, they have to stay quarantined, and it's not easy to do when you're elderly. It's not easy to do at any age. But there's no question that this virus is. Uh, uh, is is materially more dangerous uh, as people get older. Right. Uh, as you say, uh, coming out of it, if we can get through this time, get the vaccine, and 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 so many elderly still, uh, you know, come out uh, of the other side, I- I'll bet it has a big impact on the way even somebody who's older, uh, uh, my father in his mid 80s, thinks about life uh, uh, even differently than than he did before this. So yeah. I would agree with you. I think right. so. That- Right. That could be a boost to philanthropy uh, for uh, in, in you know in different Hopefully. ways. Uh, for people who are watching, uh, listening, uh, I recently interviewed two authors that I uh, whose books I, if, if you want to know more about this kind of situation we're living through, I highly recommend. One is a book by John Barry, came out in around 2010 or no 2004, I think it was 2004. It's called The Great Influenza. It's about the so-called Spanish flu. And the amazing thing that happened then, and, and then roughly 50 to 100 million people were killed and roughly 675,000 Americans were killed. In that day and age, because we were in World War I, people did not want to mention that people were dying from this and it was never mentioned. The President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, although he actually got the influenza, he never mentioned it publicly. And many officials didn't want to mention it because it was going to thought to be hurt the war effort. But it's a great lesson. And kind of how people handled the, the, the situation then. Another one is a book called Spillover by David Quammen. And his, his, his book came out in 2012. He predicted a pandemic and he said, the reason we'll have a pandemic is this. We now have seven and a half billion people on the face of the earth, um, dramatically more than we had just a hundred years ago or 200 years ago. And these people are now encroaching increasingly on the land that animals have occupied. And we have more and more connections with animals and we're in, in their space and they're in our space. And the result is that viruses that they've had, which they can live with some cases, are coming to our uh, species. They're jumping, uh, called zoonotic, and, and it's jumping to our species. And so bats, for example, which are prevalent around the world, are gigantic uh, purveyors of, of diseases. It may well be that this COVID-19 came from a bat. We don't know for certain. But it's just a, a lesson in, in how this is likely to happen again because of human conduct, we have so many ways we're interacting with animals now, and the viruses that are safe in them in some cases come to us. It's happened true in Ebola, it's true in, in, in things like HIV and so forth. Um, Craig, let me ask you a question about that. You've seen many great leaders in Wall Street over the years. Um, what is it that you look, you've seen as the, the quality that makes the, the, a person a really uh, strong leader? Uh, when somebody is leading a great company, or, or he or she, what is it that they have, one or two qualities that you, you most look for or most admire? You know, David, I, you, you can't, you, you have to start with the, the ability to, to uh, define a strategy that's a, a successful strategy for the organization and, and, and set it out and, and get people rallied around that. The quality I look for after that is the ability to positively motivate. I think that uh, human beings, if they're very talented or, or any any anybody, but if you're going to pull together a great group of people and get them to follow you as a leader, you need to motivate them in a positive way day in and day out. They need to feel inspired by the job. One of the things I say all the time uh, on town halls that I do at Rockefeller Capital Management, I, we want to set a, up a culture 
or when people get off the elevator, they're excited about what's going to happen that day. They're not thinking about what time they're leaving. They, they, they like their work, they like their colleagues, they find it stimulating. So uh, uh, leadership that, uh, that creates a, a positive morale and momentum uh, and, a, and a sense of excitement in, in the organization, to me, that's the 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 top of the the uh, uh, of the hill, and 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 you find that the uh, in in the in the most uh, infrequent circumstances. There's just not a lot of that, uh, and I think right. that's true, David. I would argue, and I'm going to turn that around and ask you about your book because I would argue that's true. Uh, Wall Street, business, government, academia. I think that's true everywhere. Uh, I think um, the ability to to bring together uh, very talented people, set out a vision and get them to follow it and feel good about it and get up every day motivated uh, to, 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 uh, to pursue it and to make the, the overall organization better. I think that's the, right. the, you know, the holy grail of leadership and it, it happens very infrequently. Now you wrote a book, The American right. Story, uh, you know, which is centered in your whole passion for American history. Uh, and you, you've got uh, many uh, compelling uh, uh, stories of uh, embedded there. Is there a leader in particular that you admire yeah. over the course of American history? It doesn't have to be an American, though. You can yeah. I'll give you the whole world. Oh, okay. Well, uh, just for those who haven't heard of the book, it's, it's published by Simon and Schuster. And basically, what it is is this: I, I started a program six years ago, interview great American historians in front of members of Congress. So once a month, I host a dinner at the Library of Congress to try to educate members of Congress about American history on the theory that. Uh, it's important to know history so you can avoid the mistakes of the past and who should know how to avoid the mistakes of the past more than people who are making our laws. And it's been pretty successful. Members come and they like it. They enjoy it. They've read the books. They, whatever you might think of members of Congress, they actually do care about American history and they are taking it very seriously. To answer your question, in my view, there is one American who is so far above everybody else in terms of providing leadership and is a role model, and it's Abraham Lincoln. Um, he kept the country together during the Civil War when I think almost any other leader would have said to the South, you want to go away, you want to keep slavery, go do it. I'm not having you ruin my country. We lost 600,000 men and 3% of the pop men and women, 300,000, 3% uh, of the population, the equivalent of losing 9 or 10 million today. It was an enormously terrible time for our country. It went off for four years. People originally thought it would last for a short period of time. It went off for four years and the death and destruction was terrible. It took us many, many years to recover from that. In many ways, we never really recovered from it. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was always humble. He always uh, blamed himself for failings that happened. He didn't, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, bemoan his fate. He had a certain way of expressing himself. And recently, in part for preparing for some things, I went back and read the Gettysburg Address and read back, went back and read the second inaugural address, probably the greatest inaugural address of all time. Um, and uh, I think, you know, if you read those, those, those words, uh, 272 words to Gettysburg Address, you see a man who um, felt the pain of those who had died. He recognized the importance of keeping the country together. He, he saw that as his mission to do this, and he thought it was his responsibility to do this. Do this. And he, he didn't kind of say, well, it's somebody else that uh, could do this better than me, or I, 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 somebody else should have, should have done this or that. He just took the, the responsibility himself. And I, I really admire him. And I think he held the country together in ways that uh, 
I don't think any other person could have at that time. And, you know, I don't know where we get more Abraham Lincolns, uh, but uh, uh, he was he was a unique figure in American history for sure. Well, I would uh, 100% agree with that. And that Gettysburg Address, uh, uh, written, uh, written, you know, basically on the back of a napkin on the way there, as you said, uh, just spectacular in that uh, the the the, the uh, emotion he felt and lived as the leader. He cared so much. Uh, so great, great choice, uh, David. I want to I want to thank you for being here. Uh, the tag team is fun. My pleasure. And, uh, Feels like uh, we 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 did this just yesterday. We've been doing this for a while now. Uh, your your um, the the breadth of things that you find interesting and dedicate yourself to is really where I tried to start up front. I, I I'm sure I went on longer than you wanted, but I do have uh, and I always do this uh, in in all of the public events we have at Rockefeller Capital Management. I always end with a quotation, and the quotation today. Uh, is is uh, I picked because of David Rubenstein and the and the way that you've lived your life and and uh, and where you came from and and where you've transitioned here, um, and the impact that you've had, and it comes from David McCullough's bi biography of the Wright brothers, which is a book I would highly recommend. Uh, these were two spectacular uh, Americans, uh, not unlike uh, Lincoln in some of the ways that uh, David just described, or or, or frankly yourself, David. Uh, but here's the quotation which uh, which I picked uh, because it reminded me of uh, of, uh, of the life that you've lived as well, David. Uh, Orville Wright was uh, uh, was written to by a friend who said, uh, "You're the classic American success story." And I'm paraphrasing the friend. You came from nothing, and you uh, you've uh, you know you you were the first ones to fly. And Orville Wright uh, wrote back and said, and this is in McCullough's biography, but it isn't true. Uh, Orville responded emphatically to say we had no special advantages. The greatest thing in our favor was growing up in a family where there was always much encouragement to intellectual curiosity. We talk about that in my family and my household all the time. What are real advantages? And uh, sometimes in the current world, people get confused that it's really advantage means financial. Uh, and right. advantages come in many forms. Uh, and David Rubenstein, uh, uh, grew up without, uh, you know, excessive financial advantage, but uh, there must have been a lot of other advantages for you to have done what you've well, done with your career. Well, thank you very much for saying that. And David McCullough would say that the reason the Wright brothers succeeded is despite the fact that neither of the brothers graduated from college, they had two advantages. One, their father had lots of books in their house and growing up, he forced them to read, then they developed the love of reading they were always reading. And secondly, they failed many times, but they kept coming back. They were not the, willing to accept failure. So the willingness to keep coming back and the willingness to exercise your brain by reading is what uh, I think David McCullough say, uh, would say is why they succeeded. But thank you very much. And, Dave, and Greg, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for being here, Dave. That's a great ending. Thank you to our clients and everybody who uh, listened to this. Have a great weekend. Stay healthy, safe, and upbeat. Uh, there are good times ahead. Uh, thanks again. Thank you. Have a good weekend.